0: Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Finding someone who shares your values in today's culture isn't easy. And being single around the holidays isn't easy either. That's why Catholic Singles created a website and app where single Catholics can meet and get to know each other that focuses on values, activities, and interests. For over two decades, Catholic Singles has been fostering deep relationships because your faith matters. Start today at catholicsingles.com. Ignatius Press is pleased to announce the first national book club created for Catholic Schools. Ignatius Book Club for Catholic Schools was launched to support Catholic Schools' dedication to forming the whole child, mind, body, and spirit. Ignatius Book Club for Schools partnered with leading publishers of children's literature to offer the best books and educational materials for all reading levels and interests. Head to IgnatiusBookClub.com/podcast and find wholesome books that delight, inspire, and enrich. CMF Curo is the country's first Catholic healthcare ministry to provide an affordable health sharing solution rooted in Catholic teaching and community. Learn more at MyCatholicHealthcare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthcare.com. CMF Curo, healthcare fully alive.
1: Welcome to Hilaire Belloch's Characters of the Reformation. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. In this chapter, we consider St. Thomas More. And Belloch points out the interior quality of Thomas More's heroism and how he died for one particular point of doctrine, and that is the papal supremacy. In this time of transition and turmoil in the Church, a time of immense change and rapid change in society, It's important that we keep our priorities and look for those foundational truths on which everything else is built. If we compromise those, everything else soon falls, and papal supremacy and faithfulness to the Pope is the source of authority for the Catholic Church and source of authority for a Christian culture and a Christian civilization. Therefore, Thomas More is such an important character for us today because he reminds us by his humble death and his heroic virtue, what is most important for us as we consider our own situation. St. Thomas More The portrait of St. Thomas More in any series dealing with the English Reformation must differ in quality from any of the other portraits in this fashion. In other words, we do not, as in the case of Catherine of Aragon or Henry, Anne Boleyn, Cromwell, or any of the others, concern ourselves particularly with the external events of the man's life. They may be told briefly— they are easily summarized, and they are universally known. He was born in the high and wealthy legal world of Catholic England, 13 years before King Henry the Eighth. He inherited and stepped naturally into the greatest honors and legal position. He abandoned them all and died for the faith. There is no problem of a political nature attached to that famous name. There is no plot or intrigue. We have not to seek out and guess what was really at work in him by way of ambition or anything of that kind. What we can do, and what is of importance, is to understand what the man was interiorly, what kind of victory it was which he won, and how what he was and the victory he won explain the time in which he lived. The task is all the more necessary because, in a very subtle way, but a very important one, the St. Thomas More is badly understood. And in misunderstanding him, we misunderstand the nature of the English Reformation itself, as well as the peculiar and individual greatness of this individual martyr. What I may call the conventional portrait of the man, the one which both Catholics and Protestants accept, is something as follows. While most of England was following the lead of King Henry and cutting itself off from the unity of the Church, and while the country as a whole was going Protestant, a few men among the laity stood out for the old Catholic position they would not listen to any talk of the breach with the papacy which they knew to be of divine institution and the very keystone of the church therefore they boldly sacrificed themselves rather than give way to the new claims of the lay state or admit henry to be the supreme head of the church or accept protestant doctrine or admit that anne boleyn was queen or that her child elizabeth could legitimately become queen after her of these very few laymen who so stood out the most distinguished was a great lawyer a man of good birth who became Lord Chancellor of England. He was also a great scholar and eminent throughout Europe. But he laid down his life in the cause of the church as against Protestantism, and on that account, he has been canonized. That, I say, is roughly the picture presented. Now, the true picture tells us things far more profound, and the character it presents is far more subtle, far more tempted, and far more of an example of sanctity and martyrdom than so simple a summary would lead us to believe. The external side of this conventional portrait is right enough. Thomas More was a great lawyer who had early achieved fame and fortune for his profession and become Lord Chancellor of England. He was eminent throughout Europe for his scholarship, a great international figure, and he was put to death for refusing to deny a point of Catholic doctrine. What is wrong about it is the internal interpretation Those who thus simplify the story, making it a plain scheme of black and white, do so either because they are insufficiently acquainted with the details of that career, or because the right emphasis is not laid in the right places by those from whom they have drawn their information. The whole of the true story is twofold. One, the great martyr whom we venerate had all the intellectual and moral difficulties which attach to genius of his kind. Two, he acted alone. He was unsupported. As to the first point, he had the temptations which beset the intellectual man, the sensitive scholar, the successful worldly figure. To these temptations he was in danger of yielding, and had partly yielded. He triumphed over them, and that in a fashion quite peculiar to himself. That is why he is so glorious, and that is why he is so great an example. Sir Thomas More was not simply a Catholic withstanding a movement toward Protestantism. Had he been that, he would have been like almost any other Englishman of his time. He was not simply a man determined on defending Catholic doctrine and boldly proclaiming it at all risks, because it was his nature thus to challenge and combat. Had he been of such a sort, his victory over himself would have been far less than it was. As to the second point, let us note this all-important matter, which is the very core of his great sacrifice. He acted in complete isolation, and he laid down his life for one small strict point of Catholic doctrine only— and what is more a point of doctrine on which he had himself long doubted he was not supported by the military spirit the combative energy which delights in challenge and in counter affirmation he was not supported by any sympathy for himself even among his nearest he was not supported by the nature of his own mind which had been hesitant and even in essential matters changeable He gave himself up as a victim in spite of all those things which would have made 999 men out of a thousand deceive themselves that they might be doing right in yielding this is the heroic and almost unique quality in more to begin with let it clearly be understood that saint thomas more was a reformer the whole of europe was in turmoil between the old scholastic culture And the new passion for pagan antiquity, which was making Greek scholarship so powerful an instrument of criticism against ancient ideas and habits in religion. The whole of Christendom was moved also by a spirit which caused the younger men especially, and more especially the more intelligent and emotional of the younger men, to denounce the corruptions of the time, the errors of legend, the exaggeration of certain practices, and the doubtfulness and demonstrable falsity of many shrines, relics, and superstitious miracles. Sir Thomas More was just of the kind who would, according to the mere order of nature, have drifted from step to step, beginning with indignation against abuses and ending with the full heretical position into which nearly all such men later fell. He was indignant against the social order of his time, as well as against the abuses of the church. What is more, his indignation inspired him to wit and to very high literary efforts, and men who discover such talents in themselves while they are still young nearly always fall into the temptation of becoming increasingly revolutionary as time proceeds. Sir Thomas More should, therefore, according to the order of nature, have become ultimately a violent opponent not only of the social order, but of that divine unity in the church for which he eventually laid down his life. All his character seemed to point that way. Again, he began as a man of profound worldly ambition. He fully recognized his own talents, and he gloried in them. They had led him to the highest political position in the state. Such a temper should naturally have made him, in the long run, acquiesce in all official action in order to further his ambition. Again, he was a man full of humor, and also full of domestic affection. He keenly felt how ridiculous a man looks in any isolated position, how absurd it is to be a crank— And he felt still more keenly misunderstandings with any of his own household such a man should naturally shrink more than would another from any action let alone the acceptation of death itself in which he would suffer the public accusation of eccentricity and perverseness and the reproaches even of his own wife lastly there is this point about the isolation of this martyr he could foresee no fruit following upon his great example in fact, during all the 400 years from his day to ours, no apparent political fruit has been borne by it. He was absolutely alone. He had nothing within or without, nothing promised in the future, nothing herited from the past, nothing in the traditions of his habit and life to nerve him for what he did. And yet he did it. In order to understand how extraordinary the case is, and what a marvelous example it is of resolution and vision combined let us appreciate exactly what it was that Blessed Thomas More defended at the cost of his own life. He died for the principle that ultimately, in spiritual matters, the Pope was the head of Christendom, a principle which all Christendom was debating, and had been debating for more than a hundred years, and on which all his lay world in England differed from him. To take a break, To think for a moment about St. Thomas More in relation to our own times, he would have been categorized as a progressive, or as a liberal, or as a reformer. And in all of these ways, he points to us the complexity of the situations we're in right now, in which the church is being um, taken through a time of transition and change, where reforming voices are calling for change, and we're facing corruption, and we're facing all the problems that they faced in the medieval church as well at the time of the Reformation. And Thomas Moore's example of being clear about exactly what the main point is is something which we need to be reminded about, and look again at our priorities, and not to get so caught up in, in the peripherals, but to focus on the main point and the foundational points which we cannot compromise. And back to Belloc, he did not die for the real presence, as did many another after him. He did not die as many another might have done out of loyalty to Queen Catherine. He did not die as a protest against a doctrine generally held heretical. Still less did he die rather than give up some old fixed habit of mind attached to the ancient civilization of his country. He was not a man merely angry against change. On the contrary, he had been all for change. He did not die even at the end of a long public protest against the way in which things were drifting. He did not die for the Mass or for the sanctity of the clerical order. He died only for that one point of the Papal Supremacy, then universally doubted, and one on which it was common sense to compromise. To us today, it seems an obvious thing to say, oh, but the Papal Supremacy is the very test of Catholicism. So too Sir Thomas himself saw, but so did not see the Mass of his contemporaries, and so had he himself not seen a very short time before. When Henry VIII had himself been working against the Lutherans in favor of the papal office and saying that the papacy was a divine institution, Sir Thomas More had been of the opinion that it was not so. He had decided from his reading up to that point that the papacy was no more than an historical development, bound up no doubt with the structure of the church but of human origin, as is the most of ecclesiastical organization. A hundred years before, he would have been essentially by temperament one of those naturally supporting the authority of the great councils against the Pope. Yet it was for that very point, which he had himself doubted, that he consented to die. Observe the circumstances of that death and see how strange they were compared with what might be called, with due respect, the general run of martyrdoms. The king had determined to get his true marriage declared null, to make Anne Boleyn his queen, and to make Anne Boleyn's child his heir. Sir Thomas More did not protest when he saw that the royal policy was drifting more and more away from the unity with the Holy See. He resigned his office, but he did so without explanation. If another should take his place who had not these scruples, he would raise no voice against the newcomer. When the royal supremacy was declared in its final and most conclusive form in November of 1534, and the Pope was repudiated, he remained what was called in the language of the day, a loyal subject to his natural lord, King Henry. He did not challenge. He remained silent so far as his official action went, although, of course, his private conviction was known. Even when the oath of supremacy was administered, he was prepared to accept the marriage of Henry with Anne and to admit that their child should inherit the throne through the disinheritance of the true heiress, the Princess Mary when the document was put before him for his acceptance to be sworn to in the presence of Cranmer at Lambeth in the Archbishop's Palace, he made no protest against it as a whole. All he said was that there was a point in the preamble which he could not accept. He held out over a detail, or what seemed to contemporaries a detail, one poor scruple. He said that the preamble implied something he could not in conscience accept. He stood firm on that one small point, that the phraseology of one small part of a law, which in everything else he accepted, was at issue with orthodoxy. For that he was imprisoned. For that, many months after, he willingly accepted death. When they went through the form of trial in the last days before his sacrifice, it is remarkable to observe how silent he still remained, how wholly upon the defensive, still asking his opponents to prove their case and keeping back in reserve all that he might have said i'll interrupt here to remind you of that wonderful film man for all seasons in which at his trial the dignity and the humanity of thomas More is seen in its fullness if you haven't seen that film i advise you to see if you can find it and and watch it the man for all seasons until sentence was delivered no man could have proved out of his own mouth what that doctrine was for which none the less, he was ready to lay down his life only when sentence had been passed did thomas more speak at last fully and tell them precisely what his position was to his own family as a whole probably to his wife certainly and to nearly all his friends and to the mass of englishmen at his time his position was not heroic but absurd the king was already head of everything in england and had been for generations past. He nominated to the bishoprics and the great abbeys. His was the Supreme Court of Appeal in nearly everything that mattered. And even though there was in this last declaration of full supremacy something novel, yet a quarrel between king and pope was something with which Englishmen had been familiar over and over again for centuries. It would heal quickly, no doubt, as the others had. And at any rate, such political broils were nothing to sacrifice one's fortune for, let alone one's life. If indeed someone must stand out and be dramatic in the matter and overdo the histrionics in the now quite out of date Thomas of Becket fashion, why let it be a priest at least, and best of all, some great prelate. No doubt men could understand Bishop Fisher standing up, but why a lawyer, a layman, Thomas More? He was, I repeat, utterly alone. He had no support from without. And what support had he from within? That terrible question we cannot answer with certitude, but we can, I think, with probability. I think he had very little support from within. He was not only a skeptical mind, as has been the mind of more than one who has nonetheless suffered death for truth, held by faith, and not by experience. It was also a mind which had long practice of seeing both sides of any question— and thinking anything could be argued on that particular point of the papacy he had himself argued sincerely enough upon the wrong side i suggest that the martyr in his last moments had all the intellectual frailty of the intellectuals and that at the end of his skepticism was still working but his glorious resolution stood and that is the kernel of the affair and that is why he has what we call heroic faith Could he return to earth today, he would note, with that irony of which he was master, that his sacrifice would seem to have been in vain. Whether it were so or not, only a distant future can tell. But this much is certain, that of all those, and they were many, who bore witness in the five generations it took to root out their age-long religion from among the English, his would seem to have been the most complete passion, for he had nothing whatever to uphold him, except his resolve and his faith. Thank you for listening to Characters of the Reformation. I hope you've enjoyed the series so far and that you'll continue to listen. If you've enjoyed it, share it with others. And please remember to visit my blog, Standing on My Head, where you'll be able to read my blog posts and browse my books and be in touch. Thank you for listening.
0: Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at woodhillcommunitycenter.org. Toyota in Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit Toyota ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington. Home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com.